And thank you, Rochelle, for all that you do for us. The blessing of our Haftor is just one of the many blessings you give our congregation. Thank you. She's going to look for the air conditioning. It was just a few years ago that we renamed this lecture that Chris has been giving now for so many years in memory of his beloved Rhoda. Chris, we think of her every day and every day that we learn from you. The teaching of her life continues in and through you to be a teaching for our entire congregation. We welcome you again to our Bima to teach us as our teacher and as our friend. I, I am honored that our rabbis have again asked me to make some remarks on the afternoon of our most solemn day when we are called upon to recall the precious memory of those who have died. Soon we will be recalling those who are personally dear to us, parents, spouses, partners, siblings, friends, and in some cases, sadly, even children. But we paused at this time to recall others, as we did at the beginning of the service and now again, people whose names are often not even known to us, but whose fates we know only too well. Those who were murdered for the simple reason that they were Jews. And never were more persons murdered for that reason than during the Shoah. Like all of us, I have often had to reflect on that event as a Jew. But as a historian, I have also had to reflect on the Holocaust from a historical perspective. And this afternoon, I would like to do so once again. Let me begin by asking all of you to summon up some mental images of things that happened 75 years ago in the grim wartime year of 1942. You have heard of these things many times, but there are reasons to think about them again. I want you to try to imagine the situation. After years of ever-growing fear, you and your family and friends are by now gripped by speechless anxiety. Every day seems to bring some new order or some new humiliation. You may no longer own a camera. You may not own a radio. You may not own a vehicle. Your children may no longer attend school. More and more of what you own, perhaps your very means of making a living, have been taken away from you. And now you are told that you and your family must gather up some last belongings that will fit into a very specific amount of luggage 
and assemble at a specific time and place. Your neighbors pretend not to notice as you leave your homes. They close their curtains. They look the other way. Feeling very alone, sick with fear and worry, afraid of the consequences if you do not obey, you and your family appear as required. You are taken to the railway station. You are all told to get into a train. And then what? For hours, the train moves slowly through increasingly unfamiliar landscapes. You've heard something about camps somewhere to the east. And eventually the train arrives at its destination. You are indeed at a camp, a place such as you've never seen before. Row after row of small three-room cabins stretch out before you. Here, you are told, is where you will live. Two families in each little poorly insulated cabin. What will you do? How will you survive? A few of you are put to work nearby. Most of you just stay in your cabins. A pathetically small monthly allowance is provided, barely sufficient to buy enough food to keep going. You've been told that your children will be educated, but it takes weeks, maybe months, before some rudimentary schools are set up. Letters in and out of the camp are severely censored. You have no idea what lies ahead. What have you and your people done to deserve this? Eventually, after three long years, the war comes to end. But where should you go? Your homes, your property, your fishing boats were taken away from you, and there's no hope of getting them back. It takes years before there is some modest partial compensation for what was stolen from you. It takes decades before there is any kind of apology. What happened to 20,000 Canadian citizens of Japanese origin right here in British Columbia beginning in 1942 is a profound stain on the history of this country which we love. It is right that Canadians are taught about this episode. It teaches lessons that we must continue to impart from one generation to the next. It must not be forgotten. But perhaps, perhaps as I began to narrate these events, you thought I was talking about something else. Perhaps you thought I was talking about Europe. For in fact, what happened to Jews in Europe in the year 1942 often began in precisely the same way as the events of that same year on the west coast of Canada. But then, from the moment they got into those trains, everything was very, very different. Do I have to tell you what was different? Of course not. You already know. You know what those trains in Europe were like. 
You know why so many of the passengers were no longer even alive when the train arrived at some camp. You know what happened to those who did emerge from the trains. You know how they were inspected by medical doctors and selected for one fate or another. You know what happened to those who were put on one line and to those who were sent to the other. You know how many Jews had already died before 1942 in their villages or in the fields or in the ghettos all over Eastern Europe. You know how many Jews altogether died between 1939 and 1945. And you know how very different that story was from the Canadian story which I have narrated. But what is the most important, the most significant difference between these two stories whose opening chapters are so similar and whose later chapters are not? You may have your own opinion about what the greatest difference was. So do I, and I will venture to tell you mine. It is this. What happened in British Columbia in 1942 and the aftermath can be described in words, as I have tried to do. But the Shoah cannot. You know what happened in the Shoah. It is in your bones, in your gut, but it cannot be described in words. How can I possibly say this? After all, there are numberless words about the Holocaust. Hundreds of thousands of personal memoirs or scholarly books and research articles have been published about the Shoah in any number of languages, in English, in Hebrew, in Yiddish, in German, French, Italian, Japanese, dozens more. Hundreds of Thousands of lectures, speeches, broadcasts, sermons have been devoted to the Shoah. I've read many of these books and articles, often with great admiration. I've heard many informative lectures and speeches. I myself have written some things and spoken many times about the Shoah. It is not as if people have not tried to put this in words. But there is this, nothing, nothing I have ever read or heard, let alone anything I have ever written or said, comes close to adequately describing what the Jews of Europe experienced between 1939 and 1945. This is not a new problem. It goes back more than 70 years to the very time when the Nazi camps were discovered and liberated at the end of the Second World War. Soldiers, officers, journalists, chaplains, aid workers who participated in liberating those camps wrote countless reports and descriptions and letters to their superiors or friends or families back home. Long, anguished documents in which they tried to explain what they had seen. 
And yet over and over, their reports and letters said the same thing. There are no words to describe what I have seen. I do not know how to explain this. Nothing I write will begin to give you any idea. There are no words. There are no words. And there are still no words. When we say that the Shoah was an unspeakable event, that is not a cliché or a metaphor. It is the truth. We must try, of course. We must try to find the words. We must go on writing and lecturing and teaching about the Shoah. We must research the details, publish the memoirs, mount the exhibitions, make the documentaries. We must stand in front of the young people of our province and try to use the Holocaust to teach them what racist thinking can lead to. But even so, Anyone who thinks they have found the language to adequately encompass what we know in our heart and our gut about the Shoah does not, in fact, really grasp what happened. It is truly an event which must be described, yet ultimately remains beyond description. But again, we must try. And we must not only speak and write and think about the Shoah itself, but we must try to determine what it means and what it may imply for the present and the future. To do so leads simultaneously to two of the most profound of all human emotions despair, and hope. Let me try to explain. Despair, that part is easy to understand. Who amongst us would not feel despair in contemplating what happened in the Shoah? What did my beloved wife feel all her life knowing that on the 29th of November, 1942, her grandmother, Tekla Rosenberg, was shoved onto a train destined for Auschwitz and was never heard from again. Or that her grandfather, Karl Rosenberg, desperately sick in body and mind, died in misery at the transit camp of Ibiza. What should I feel? knowing that my Jewish grandfather, Emil Bruel, died in France at the height of the Nazi occupation, most likely by his own hand. And what should we all feel? For when we summon forth names like these, we are not just speaking of my wife's grandparents or mine or yours. We are speaking of the grandparents and great-grandparents of the entire house of Israel. This happened not just to them. It happened to us. But there is something even worse. There are those who imagine 
after May of 1945, that knowing of these events would somehow cure the world of racist thinking, that in the future one could draw a knowledge of the Holocaust to teach humanity what can happen when people accept and promote the belief that some categories of human beings are inherently better than others. Yet in fact, racist thinking is as abundant today as ever. We must not think, not today of all days when we are bidden to reflect on our own sins, that racist thinking has even disappeared entirely among Jews. Our own senior rabbi has spoken about exactly this from this very bima. But vastly, vastly more ominous are the repeated examples of racist genocide that have taken place all over the world since 1945. We need only think of places like Bosnia or Rwanda or Darfur. And right now we note with anguish that a widely admired recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize remains silent as hundreds of thousands of human beings are driven from her own country because of their race and religion. Nothing. Nothing has been learned since 1945. Surely we are right to feel moments of hopeless despair. But hope? That may seem more surprising. Yet there is one undeniable fact. Six million Jews were murdered but Jews as a people survived. And if the Jewish people could survive the Shoah, the most devastating attempt to eliminate Jews from existence on earth, are we not entitled to hope, indeed to know, that somehow the Jewish people will always survive? And not just survive. Jews today live confidently and proudly in almost every part of the world. Are there dangers? Yes, and there always will be. But if the Jewish people could survive the Holocaust, they can and will survive anything. Indeed, I will venture a prediction of course, nobody, least of all historians, should ever venture to predict what will happen this year or next. Who amongst us would have predicted just a year ago some of the things that have happened in the last 12 months? Short-term predictions are always pointless. But long-term predictions are different for they are based on knowing something about the long arc of history. And what does the long arc of Jewish history 
teach us. Jews have existed for over 3,000 years. There have been changes, radical changes. There have been devastating threats to our existence. Yet Jews still observe the Sabbath and the holidays that were ordained for us 3,000 years ago. We still revere and read and discuss and debate the words of the Torah that were redacted well over 2,000 years ago. We still build synagogues, as Jews have done for two millennia. We have been threatened. We have moved from place to place, but we carry on. And if this has happened for 3,000 years, including years that witnessed the greatest catastrophe of Jewish history, why not for another 1,000 years or more? So, in fact, we can confidently imagine Jewish life a thousand years from now. A thousand years from now, the world as a whole will have radically changed. Which parts of this planet will be habitable and inhabited may be entirely different from now. The system of countries and states which we take for granted now will be unrecognizable. Medicine, education, transportation, the very food that humans eat will be transformed. But there will still be Jews and Jewish life. Jews will have faced new challenges, new Hitlers, new suffering. But as a people, Jews as a people will have survived. Jews will still observe the Sabbath, celebrate the holidays, read the Torah, and let their neighbors in the world know that they exist and will continue to. Confident of our future as a people, we wish for one another that the year 5778 may be one of peace and health. And we hope that 30 generations from now, as they enter the year 6,778, our distant descendants in a world we cannot begin to envision will also be wishing each other a good year filled with the peace and health for which all Jews will ever yearn. Shana Tovah.